0: I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about aerial attacks, missile strikes, and Ukraine's defense against Russia in this regard, we have with us Tom Carrico who's a senior fellow in our international security program and director of the Missile Defense Project at CSIS. Tom, thanks for joining us today. I, I got to ask you right out of the bat, we're seeing a ton of missile use in Ukraine. And we're also seeing a lot of talk by the Ukrainians about a no-fly zone and their interest in air defenses. What do you think about these requests? And, and really, what's the situation as you see it in terms of missiles and air attacks and defenses right now in Ukraine?
1: Yeah, well, Andrew, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. You know. As of today, the Pentagon announced that the Russians have fired over 1,450 ballistic and cruise missiles into Ukraine. We're talking on Wednesday, April 6th, and that's the latest number. That's the latest number, yeah. And so it's a, it's a mix. It's been a sort of a half dozen plus different kinds of so-called hypersonic, ballistic, and cruise missiles, as well as uh, lots of drone usage by both sides. Uh, there's a Tachka missile that's actually been used by the Ukrainians to some effect, as well, as well as the Russians. So, you know, here we are in 2022, and the the Ukrainians are begging, they're pleading to anybody who will listen for MiGs, for the West to contribute to some kind of a no-fly zone. But they're also begging for tons and tons of air defenses. So here we are. You know, air defenses are really useful. Who knew? I like to quote uh, General Milley when he was then uh, chief of staff of the Army, when he kicked off the 2017 Army Modernization Strategy he had five, six priorities. He got down to air defense, and he said everything that preceded that doesn't matter. None of that matters, he says, <laughs> if right. you're dead, and that's why you need air defense. Yeah. And lo and behold, S-300s, S-200s, Patriots, etc. lots and lots of demand signal for that. So,
0: and that's what the Ukrainians want from us, those anti-aircraft and anti-missile defense mechanisms.
1: Yeah, it's everything from the Stinger. Right. The, the, the glorious Stinger that you've seen taking out mostly helicopters, perhaps some some aircraft as well to some good effect. I mean, that, of course, that was used in the 1980s. Yeah. The,
0: the Mujahideen used it most effectively against the Russians. And, and, and
1: the Stinger hasn't changed that much since then. Uh, of course, there's there's talk about upgrading it and getting rid of some obsolescence and that kind of thing. But right now, it's just, an oldie, but a goodie. <laughs> classic rock and, and Stingers, they, they, they persist. But uh, lots of demand signal for that as quickly as possible. Of course, there's also the anti-tank stuff as well. But just focusing on the air defense side of it, there's been this huge effort to to rush to the Ukrainians systems that they are, are close to what they're trained on, and that's why the Slovaks and other folks are, and frankly, the United States digging out of our stores that we didn't fess up to having until now. I think it was an S300 that's been kept in Alabama for a couple decades uh, that we acquired surreptitiously. This, these are systems that they're kind of trained on. Get them over to them as fast as possible to, to stop some of the aerial attacks. So, Tom, when regular Americans hear about, you know,
0: hypersonic missiles, for instance, and some of these other names of things the Russians are using, it's pretty scary stuff. And these are really destructive weapons. Can you explain, like, what some of these things do and what the Ukrainians are really dealing with?
1: Mm. Well, really what they're dealing with other than the barbarism Uh, on the ground, of course, but in terms of this particular species of attack, it's a lot of lower-end cruise missile-type stuff. They've got a caliber cruise missile, like a couple variants of that that they're using, that aren't particularly fast, but that are sufficiently fast and fly sufficiently low that they're hard to intercept. Then you've got some several uh, kind of ballistic missiles, the Iskander. The Iskander is kind of a launcher that can fire different things, but they've got a ground-launched Iskander, and they've got a variant called the Kinzel. Now, the Kinzel is the missile that you alluded to that is, you know, so-called hypersonic, but it's air-launched. It's launched off the belly of a of an aircraft. And it was one of, it was in that list that Putin rolled out, I think it was 2018, 2019, of his, you know, big Bond villain list of scary missiles roadshow. But basically, it's, it's, it's an air-launched ballistic missile. So for all the attention about the hypersonic, this, that, and the other thing, they've got some crazier stuff. But for what we've seen so far, it's kind of your garden variety, cruise missiles and ballistics for the most part. And as I said, 1450 and counting employed so far. So that's, that's a sufficient enough problem in addition, of course, to the MiGs and the other aircraft that the Russians are, are doing. And they've got those in sufficient quantity to just old-fashioned bomb the Ukrainians. So in your
0: view, how effective are they? with what they've done so far and how
1: effective have the Ukrainians been in in repelling these attacks. So that's that's an interesting dynamic. There was a a Reuters story maybe a week and change ago that had a source uh, within DOD saying that uh, a 20 to 60 percent failure rate on the part of Russian air-launched cruise missiles. Not all of them, but this particular kind of category of them. Now, maybe that's because of sort of Russian production processes, or maybe it's because of some electromagnetic warfare or some other guardian angel kind of an effect that's helping out, or maybe it's just bad training. But that's a remarkable statistic. I'm, I'm hesitant to kind of believe it, to take it to the bank. And again, it's just about that one category. They're hitting a lot of stuff. I mean, if you look at the pictures of Mariupol and these other places, whether it's gravity bombs, dumb bombs, or scary missiles of one kind or another, they're having an effect through through mass and by the combination of different bombs and rockets.
0: And these things just obliterate towns, as we've seen.
1: With sufficient quantities, sure. And, you know, the Russians have done that kind of thing in Chechnya, and folks were, you know, worried that they were going to go that direction here. They've done some really devastating damages, like to Mariupol and, and elsewhere. Now that they're kind of pivoting, it seems, to the east and withdrawing from the, the area around Kyiv, that might have a bit of a silver lining in terms of keeping open the, uh, the west uh, so that the Poles and the Romanians and other folks can flow forces into Ukraine. Uh, it might give the, the Ukrainians a little bit of breathing room to focus on the East and this kind of thing. It also, of course, and this is a calculus and it would be a heavy calculus that the Ukrainians have to make is to kind of come to some kind of negotiated settlement and give up these territories. I don't think they want to do that. And again, the barbarism that we're seeing is not going to put them in a negotiating mood. We'll have to see on that. But I, what I see going on, there's a little bit of, it gives them a little breathing room to to focus and perhaps buy a little bit of time to get, get more kit into country.
0: Yeah, so by all accounts, the Ukrainians have fought, admirably and they've defended kiev and they've defended themselves to the greatest extent that they can but we're still seeing a massive amount of destruction this week we saw you know further evidence of war crimes against humanity you know really you know the russians targeting civilians and a lot of that was ground based warfare against civilians not necessarily missile based but we have seen them shoot missiles into civilian populations. The other thing is, is that, you know, a lot of people have called what the Russians were doing a withdrawal. We, of course, view it as a repositioning. What does that repositioning mean in terms of
1: their current missile deployment? So, in some ways, it gives the Ukrainians a little breathing space, as I said. I think it remains to be seen what kind of Set of combined arms the Russians bring to bear, you know. As I said, we're up to fourteen fifty, but it's the pace of missile usage on the part of the Russians is slowing, uh, slowing considerably from where we were in the, in the so first. So it's slowing, part. but it still is lethal. Oh sure, sure. So what kind of mix they they use to try to keep the Donbass and and operating in the south? That's 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 hard to predict right now. I don't have my crystal ball with me at the moment, mm-hmm. but. It also, again, allows the Ukrainians to bring things to bear. And this is, you know, why Zelensky's out there jumping up and down for a, a no-fly zone. Of course, the United States, other folks are not going to do that because it is effectively getting into active conflict. That's an escalation. It, it's it was, it's not just escalation. At this point, you are getting into the conflict yeah, we as own a it. full belligerent. And by belligerent,
0: means that that we're no longer just giving aid. We're actually kinetically shooting, shooting,
1: things. shooting things. Yeah, directly. Not, you know, handing it to them to then shoot things. We're doing it ourselves. So that's why you've had almost a universal uh, expression of sympathy connected with an expression of, yeah, we're not going to go do that. But having said that, you also see the the flowing of air defenses. I'm a little skeptical of the way that the administration has handled the MiG-29s, for instance, in terms of their concern. Their perhaps over-concern for escalation. I think some folks have pointed out, look, we're giving them... By uh, drones of various kinds, we're given all kinds of help, but we are self-deterred from this one step.
0: Right. So what's the difference if we give them planes that they know how to fly versus
1: drones they know how to operate? And it may be that the the very courageous Ukrainians that flew those helicopters into Russia and hit that fuel depot, you know, it may be that they're frankly concerned that the Ukrainians will take those MiG-29s downtown deeper into Russia and provoke something that can, can further get out of hand to Moscow or something like that. So, again, you understand it, but at the same time, I think in a way we're being too self-determined. When Putin's already in. He's already in for all this kind of stuff. I think we're making some false, false distinctions.
0: So, Tom, many in the national security community think we can and should be doing more. Along those lines, what do you think we should be doing more, if you think we should be
1: doing more? I think we should be doing more. The primary failure, I think, is, is that we're doing it too late. You know, credit to the Biden administration for doing its darndest right now. But, you know, it would have been nice if we had begun flowing more sooner. They had the Intel in December, and they knew this was coming. I mean, we saw the satellite pictures commercially available. It wasn't a faint, this kind of stuff. And, and, and they were sufficiently urgent and serious about it to go and start grabbing people by the lapels and say, no, 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 this is real. So it would have been nice if they would have been flowing more stuff in earlier. And so now we're kind of playing a, a game of catch-up. Frankly, I think there's more to be done on the sanction side than they have done. They're, they're talking about sort of let's just let's just call it maximum pressure, but I don't think we're quite there on, on the sanction side. We got to keep that temperature up so that not just the Baltics but the Germans and everybody else stays solid. Let's just say some solidarity on maximum economic sanctions to no kidding crush. I don't just mean the the oligarchs' yachts and this kind of stuff, but I'm talking about the economy. And the ability of the Russian military, you know, to be able to import parts and actuators and all this kind of stuff, that needs to be kept up. I worry that that may be loosened too soon. At this point, the punishment on that needs to be pull together a whole alliance and we got to keep it hard for some duration of time. It can't be a a short period of punishment.
0: So we talked about escalation. What do you think the risk of escalation is? Like as in NATO and Russia actually trading – blows.
1: So I think the U.S. and NATO have done a very good job of, of keeping back, uh, you know, not flying in there, but giving information from afar. So I, I think you've, you've seen this expression, again, with the MiG-29s, but that's probably an overexpression of restraint, I, I think, that, you know, what else can be provocative? Weakness can be provocative. And one of my favorite lines from Herman Kahn, the theorist of nuclear things from back in the day, is he said the best uh, way to to look willing is to be willing. And I think right now we're tripping over ourselves, expressing and advertising and yelling from the rooftops all the things we won't do. I guess I'd rather the Russians have a little more uncertainty about what we won't do.
0: We're telegraphing it too Te- much.
1: we're telegraphing our red lines just a little too loudly.
0: Yeah. Well, so one of our red lines is chemical weapons, it seems. Certainly a red line is nuclear weapons. What do you think the reality... And prospect of Russia using a nuclear weapon in Ukraine or elsewhere, regarding you know our involvement in ending this conflict, and you know, are you worried about that?
1: Frankly, I don't like talking about this for the following reason: I don't like to play into the hand of, oh my goodness, they're ten feet tall and yeah, and they're scary and uh, little old us. You know, we have a nuclear deterrent; we have a flexible nuclear deterrent for a reason, so as to deter anybody from getting the bright idea of popping things off like that. Yeah,
0: last time I checked, we've got some pretty big shoulders here.
1: Yeah, and, but this is also a key feature, frankly, of the 2018 Nuclear Posture Review. We saw this coming, you know, and the Russians have, have been telegraphing their intent to rely more on their nuclear forces. They are more conventionally inferior. This is why the last Nuclear Posture Review from from 2018, Talked about a, a nuclear slickump, restoring that that been retired. Frankly, only I think it was in 2012, 2013. It gets a whole lot of flexibility uh, until we get the air launched LRSO nuclear missile online later in the decade. This is one of the reasons we are pursuing that, as well as the the low yield D5, which is a, a low yield submarine launched ballistic missile. We wanted to have smaller, more flexible options so that we don't have to respond to one particular one-off in devastating manner. We want to control escalation. And that's that's something you see Admiral Richard from STRATCOM testifying about this week, for instance. The news reports are that the Biden administration is canceling the the nuclear slickum. Not surprising, perhaps some bad timing. I think it's unfortunate. This is not really the the time to be, again, telegraphing our own red lines of what we won't do. Putin will understand strength more than he'll understand uh, weakness. So I'm not surprised that the Biden administration, based on previous predilections, went there. But it's it's unfortunate timing, certainly.
0: Yeah, it seems like odd timing to telegraph that we're ratcheting down rather than we're ramping up. Right.
1: And again, I think it communicates just a little bit too much softness when that's not what we need most. And we're not soft, though. Of course not. But I worry that we'll be backed into a corner and you put your finger on – the chemical weapon side, and so we want to be clear about what we'll do and when we'll do it. And so, if they get some, you know try to get cute with some kind of staged chemical weapon thing, that's going to have further reward. You saw the uproar about the the atrocities in the past week, which, by the way, had started I think February twenty seven, three days into the conflict, and they're just now coming to light. That will just stiffen the resolve. But the thing is, we don't we want to be clear up front. We don't want to have to ratchet up our own responses over time. So Tom, this
0: is scary stuff, right? And it's less scary to you because
1: you or, – or maybe it's more
0: scary to you because you know so much about it. But you're used to talking about missiles and weapons of mass destruction. What are we as Americans to take from this? Are we – should we be really worried about our own safety vis-a-vis Russia? Should we be worried that we're going to you know, have to get into something that there's no real off-ramp from?
1: I think we do need to keep these things in perspective. Let's not start freaking out over the so-called hypersonic missiles and this kind of stuff that they're using. Keep this in perspective. You know, what I worry about most right now is NATO and is the solidarity of NATO. We need to make sure that that stays together and is very solid. At the same time, we need to punish the heck out of Putin for this, and we need to be very clear on that, and that means energy in particular. So I think the greater danger is, in a way, freaking out too much Mm -hmm. uh, and panicking. That plays into their propaganda that makes... You know, Russia, that is after all a a gas station with nuclear weapons, seem bigger than they are. They've got some fundamental regime weaknesses that can and should be throttled right now. Fascinating. Tom, switching gears a bit,
0: the Biden administration is currently working on its nuclear posture review and missile defense review, and you just talked about that to some extent. What do you expect? will be new in this administration's NPR and MDR. How might they differ from those published by the Trump administration and the Obama administration? Right.
1: So we were just talking about the the news reports that have come out, the leaks or the, the socializations that have been done already by the administration for the nuclear side. Uh, I think there may be some token declaratory policy tweaks that are not going to be super substantial that's a good thing uh, i think the, the 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 declaratory policy including by the way of rejecting the policy of no first use we don't want to we want again retain as much flexibility as we can this cancellation of the Slick man there may be one or two other small things but i think on the nuclear side i'm not expecting a whole lot of whole lot of change although again slicker man i'm disappointed about on the missile defense side this this i think has the potential for a little bit different posture so not expecting a really long missile defense review but I, I think now's the opportunity for the Biden administration to switch gears, and we saw some of this in the PB twenty three budget request that's already come out. Just to yes, we're still going to do the North Korea ballistic missile defense thing, and in fact, the Biden administration just a year ago, Deputy Secretary Kathex uh, authorized the award of a next generation interceptor. That's all. That's all for the good to keep keep tabs on the North Korean ballistic missile defense. I
0: like to think you had something to do with that because I, I, you worked with Cath
1: here for a long time. We're all fans of Cath. Deputy Secretary
0: Hicks, I should say.
1: <laughs> uh, Dr. Hicks. Dr. Hicks. So, but on, the other big thing here is is going in a completely different direction. And you see in the, in the budget $892 million on missile defense and different pots of money for 360 degree air and missile defense of Guam. Now, why would you spend – almost a billion dollars in one year for Guam. And the reason is because now we're beginning to get serious about pivoting to China. And this isn't about ICBM defense against China. It's about that low-tier air and missile defense, cruise missiles, hypersonic things, you know, garden-variety ballistic missiles that China would use to target U.S. forces on the first and second island chains And so think Japan and Guam and this kind of stuff. And Guam just happens to be disproportionately important to American power projection. So think bombers in the air and ships at sea and things like that. And so this has been the number one priority for the Indo-PACOM commander, I think for the last three commanders and counting, pounding the table, saying, hey, I'm out here sitting on a little rock with nothing to defend me. Could you please get me some air and missile defense?
0: And meanwhile, the Chinese have islands set up all over the South China Sea and
1: Plenty of places to go from with air defenses of their own on those things. So, so I'm very gratified to see that I, I, I we, we wrote an article, you know, called "Seeking Alignment," where now it looks like we are beginning to pivot to redirecting our air and missile defenses towards the likes of Russia and China. Again, back to Ukraine for just one tad moment. All of a sudden, we're lining up out of the barn any air defense that we can find, from Stingers to S300s and et cetera, against Russia. Right. And that's the right thing to do is like, hello, you know, yeah. <laughs> we've been trying to tell you that this thing was here. And now you're seeing this, I would say this pivot on our missile defense posture. I'm very gratified to see it. I think that'll be a centerpiece based on what the budget's already said and, and what some officials have said in testimony so far.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask you, are there any surprises in the budget? And are you worried about prospect of inflation and what that what effect that might have on the budget?
1: Well, I think we're going to need to watch this very very closely. There was a hearing with Secretary Austin where he was he was uh, addressed this uh you know the the inflator that they used what two percent and change two point six something like that that's probably nowhere near the inflation that we've seen already in the past year, and I forget projection, but it's just seen so far this year uh, and so i you've seen a number of Republicans for instance, who said we want a five percent increase plus inflation, whatever the heck inflation is. And so we're seeing numbers like $40 billion over and above the, the PB being socialized. And I think that's real. I think it's almost a necessity on the basis of that inflation alone. And look, the, the Federal Reserve is starting to you know pull out their inflation <laughs> levers and pulleys and that kind of thing, and good. But a, a handful of, of tools are going to have to get that under control. This is, you know to some extent, the result of the, no kidding, trillions of dollars that have been flooding into the market over the past couple of years. But- But we got to get this under control. And it shouldn't and can't
0: affect our defense spending, is what you're saying. It
1: has to affect our defense spending in that we have to spend to where we need for the strategy and then account for inflation. That's going to be a big number. That's going to be a big number. There's a lot of sticker shock with that number, I guess. Well, you know, we're willing to spend money and throw money at problems when we really feel them. And I, I hope we're beginning to feel the national security problems to a more acute degree, that's the the adjective that they're using about Russia right now, uh, to a, a more acute degree, now that the Russian invasion of Ukraine has really brought it home in a real way that lo and behold, this is what great power competition or whatever you call it, this is what it looks and feels like.
0: Tom, I always learn a lot when I talk to you. Thank you very much for this assessment. Thank, thank you,
1: Andrew. Great to be here. All right, man.